the Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of our book club. I'll confess that I was a little apprehensive about this week, since the play is The Merry Wives of Windsor, and it's the play I know the least of all of Shakespeare's plays. I've seen it only once on stage, and it was a student production, and it was a very long time ago. I've tried my best to approach the play with fresh eyes, since it is often maligned and overlooked. A popular story maintains that it was written in haste when Queen Elizabeth sent a request for another play with Falstaff in it. Not only that, she is alleged to have suggested that she'd like to see Sir John in love. If this is the case, we could argue that Her Majesty had not seen the scenes in Part 2 of Henry IV between Falstaff and Dal Tearsheet, so maybe, maybe this suggests that the royal request arrived between parts one and two. And maybe, therefore, it was written in something like 1597. But of course, this isn't an exact science. There are some writers out there who believe that Falstaff is Shakespeare's most important creation, and indeed that Falstaff is among the most important characters in all literature. These people really don't like this play. Falstaff is weakened and cheapened, and it's not really even Falstaff anymore, they complain. There doesn't seem to be much authorship debate over this play, though, and we have folio and quarto texts that survive, so it's not as if Shakespeare didn't write it. So what happens in this quirky little play? First of all, it's a comedy rather than a history. The highest-ranking aristocrat in the play is Falstaff, and it's set among ordinary people in Windsor. To a certain extent, it's a fish-out-of-water comedy, in which Falstaff and a few of his hangers-on are deposited in this town. He's a rather enormous fish, mind you, and as Mistress Ford asks rather early in the play, what tempest threw this whale with so many tons of oil in his belly ashore at Windsor? Windsor is a perfectly ordinary English town, and Shakespeare knew better than most London playwrights what life was like in towns away from the capital city. This Windsor is a world of ordinary people, and at the play's centre are the merry wives of the title, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page. Mistress Page is currently trying to arrange a marriage for her daughter Anne, and has a local doctor in mind. Meanwhile, her husband also has a plan for Anne to marry another man altogether. Already we have the makings of a comedy. A smart young woman, interfering parents, the threat of strategic but loveless marriage. All Anne needs is a suitor of her own choice, and one is provided. Another man, called Fenton, who is from a slightly higher social class, but doesn't have any money. Anne is rich, but she doesn't have the social standing, so they're ideally matched to wed and each provide what the other's social standing lacks. Better than that, of course, they fall in love. This alone might make a fairly run-of-the-mill comedy. Who knows, maybe Shakespeare had such a story in the back of his mind, even before Her Majesty gently demanded a new Falstaff play. So Falstaff is duly deposited into the world of this Windsor. From the very beginning, he's in trouble. Justice Shallow appears, complaining that he will take his grievances with Falstaff all the way to Star Chamber, Elizabeth's much-feared judiciary court. Shallow clearly means business. He wants Falstaff punished for poaching his deer. 
Falstaff himself is, as ever, down on his luck, and he's hoping that he can make some money here in Windsor. He knows that Mistress Page and Mistress Ford both hold the purse strings in their respective homes, and so he plans on making love to them to get some money out of them. The two ladies are dear friends, and each tells the other of the fat knight's advances, and so they plan a variety of torments to punish him for his advances. When he's almost caught by a jealous husband, Falstaff winds up nearly choking in a basket of dirty laundry, which is then tipped out into the River Thames. Undeterred, he's almost caught again, but this time the trap is better laid, and so he has to dress up as Mistress Ford's aunt, who's given a variety of titles. The Fat Woman of Brentford, the Wise Woman, the Old Woman, and eventually even the Witch of Brentford. Falstaff is, I'm fairly sure, the only male character in all of Shakespeare who dresses up as a woman. It's a ridiculous scene, of course, but somehow the right people are entirely fooled by the disguise, even if they do spy Falstaff's great beard under his muffler. As if these indignities weren't enough, Falstaff is prepared to come back for more. Ever the optimist, determined to keep trying for what he wants, which is surely money just to buy sack, he agrees to yet another assignation, this time in Windsor Forest. The scheming merry wives convince him to wear a set of horns on his head, like a local folk hero called Hearn the Hunter. Half of the town seems to be in on the joke by now, and he's set upon by a gang of children dressed as fairies who pinch him and burn him with their candles. Amid all of the commotion, Mr. Page tells his suitor to grab Anne, who's wearing a green dress, and bring her away to be married. Mistress Page tells her chosen suitor to go find Anne in a white dress and do the same. I think I've got the colours right. If not, let me know. Anne is wearing neither colour, of course, and takes the opportunity to go away with Fenton and get married. The play ends with this happy union. Both parents wind up being happy enough with their daughter's choice. Everyone has had their fill of mocking Falstaff, who seems undeterred by all the madness and quite gracious about this torment. And they all agree to go home and laugh this sport o'er by a country fire. So that's the play. There isn't really very much to it. What's much more interesting to me is the question of why this play might have been written. And why, in particular, is it set in Windsor? Falstaff's character is so gloriously tied to Eastcheap in London, and particularly to the Boar's Head Tavern, that it seems peculiar for Shakespeare to have set a sequel in this rather quiet English town. If he was going to write a new play and deposit the character somewhere new, why not send him to Paris or Greece? The Merry Wives of Catalonia could have been terrific fun. But instead we get this wordy comedy set resolutely in England. And if it was indeed written in 1597, there may have been a very good reason to do so. Towards the end of the play, Mistress Quickly, who has also made it to Windsor, although Sir John doesn't seem to know her anymore, dresses up as the Queen of the Fairies and gives her attendant fairy children the following instructions. Search Windsor Castle elves within and out. Strew good luck oafs on every sacred room, that it may stand till the perpetual doom. In state as wholesome as in state is fit, worthy the owner and the owner it. The several chairs of order look you scour, with juice of balm and every precious flower. 
each fair instalment, coat and several crest, with loyal blazon evermore be blessed. And nightly, meadow fairies, looked you sing, like to the garter's compass in a ring. The expressure that it bears, green let it be, more fertile fresh than all the field to see. And oni soit qui mali pense right, in emerald tufts, flowers purple, blue and white. Let sapphire, pearl and rich embroidery, buckled below fair knighthood's bending knee. Fairies use flowers for their charactery. Away, disperse, but till tis one o'clock, our dance of custom round about the oak of Hearn the Hunter, let us not forget. This sounds rather like the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream, where the fairies bless the Duke's palace on his Athenian wedding night. It's the same kind of energy. But here, the Queen of the Fairies is talking about something very specific. She's telling her fairies to clean out and bless every nook and cranny of Windsor Castle in advance of something special happening there. That something is an investiture of the new Knight of the Order of the Garter, one of the highest orders of chivalry within the English aristocracy. It's heavily associated with Windsor Castle, where it was founded in 1348 by Edward III, so it was already nearly 250 years old by the time of this play. If there was any doubt about the association, Shakespeare fills the whole speech with images of heraldry and blazons and arms and so on. On top of that, he also names the local tavern in Windsor the Garter Inn, and one of the jolly characters in the play is the patron of that drinking house. So, throughout, people keep calling him Mine Host of the Garter, which starts to sound like a joke at the expense of the most noble order of the Garter. Now, in 1597, Queen Elizabeth granted her beloved cousin, George Carey, the Order of the Garter. This investiture would have taken place on Garter Day, which is in June, and would absolutely have taken place at Windsor Castle. So, maybe, just maybe, this is the special event that Mistress Quickly has this particular speech to set up. I should mention, of course, that George Carey was already the Lord Chamberlain and the patron of Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men. So it would probably make a lot of sense for the company he bankrolled to put on a play for such an important moment in his life. For all the thinness of the plot, at least in comparison with the majority of Shakespeare's other plays, there are some fascinating moments in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Scholars seem to love the fact that it's Shakespeare's most English play, since it's set in what looks like a very contemporary version of England's country life. But for all that, it mentions more foreign countries than any other single play I can find. Characters within The Merry Wives mention Hungarians, Phrygian Turks, Flemish drunkards, Ethiopians, Castalian kings, Ephesians, Bohemian Tartars, someone called Francisco, and even a Cathayan, Shakespeare's first ever mention of someone from China. Unfortunately, many of these descriptions are used as insults, but there's still a deliberate feeling of worldliness to these middle-class people. They are aware of the big world they live in. Indeed, it's not as if Windsor itself is homogenous. Two of the play's characters are resolute outsiders. There's the parson, who is Welsh, Sir Hugh Evans, and Dr Caius, one of Anne's potential husbands, is as ridiculously French as Don Armado was Spanish in Love's Labour's Lost. Like that play, too, 
there's a considerable amount of learning within the Merry Wives of Windsor. Mine host of the Garter throws around the names of various classical figures, from Asclepius to Galen, the doctor, and even manages to mention the word Anthropophaginians, or cannibals. For all of his notorious small Latin and less Greek, Shakespeare manages to include a very funny and very smutty scene of a Latin lesson that is upended by Mistress Quickly when she mishears a discussion of the genitive case, horum, harum, horum, and insists that if Jenny's a whore, the least they could do is not discuss her case. The more you know about what's going on here, the ruder this is. As for Falstaff, there's a pretty clear thread through the play. He's in trouble for poaching deer at the beginning, he tries to poach the Merry Wives throughout the play, and despite or because of his failures, he himself becomes the horned, hunted prey by the end. Within all of this, Shakespeare does manage to give him one rather fabulous scene. At midnight, in the forest, he appears with his horns, as instructed. The Merry Wives may have set him up to look like Hearn the Hunter, but he's also reminiscent of a jumbled version of Acteon. Acteon is a hero in classical myth who happened upon the goddess of the moon, Diana, when she was naked in the forest. He was punished and turned into a deer and then torn apart by wild dogs. Shakespeare very frequently uses the image of wild dogs for the feeling of passionate love, and the audience of well-educated courtiers would certainly have laughed at Falstaff, a portly, ramshackle, wannabe lover who probably didn't look like a classical hero, traipsing around the woods near Windsor in the hope of a glimpse of their Diana, their goddess of virginity, the Queen herself. Of course, it's a comedy, and Falstaff won't be torn limb from limb, but his dear heart has very grand aspirations as he arrives in the forest. The Windsor bell hath struck twelve. The minute draws on. Now the hot-blooded gods assist me. Remember, Jove, thou wast a bull for thy Europa. Love set on thy horns. O oh, powerful love, that in some respects makes a beast a man, in some other a man a beast. You were also, Jupiter, a swan for the love of Leda. O oh, omnipotent love, how near the god drew to the complexion of a goose. A fault done first in the form of a beast. O oh, Jove, a beastly fault. And then another fault in the semblance of a fowl. Think on it, Jove, a foul fault. When gods have hot backs, what shall poor men do? For me, I am here a Windsor stag, and the fattest, I think, in the forest. Send me a cool rut time, Jove, or who can blame me to piss my tallow? Who comes here? My doe? Just like Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Falstaff is about to be led in a merry dance through the woods. Like Bottom, too, there's something almost heroic about his delusions. Here Falstaff reaches back to the same ancient world that the host keeps referencing, but Falstaff is rather grander. As a lover, he wants to be just like Jupiter, seducing Europa like a bull or Leda like a goose. But he's also aware that he's the fattest stag in the forest. Falstaff always reaching a little bit beyond what's possible. I suppose we should love him for it. As is so often the case with Shakespeare's plays, the immediate context is gone. 
It's impossible to recreate the excitement of how this play might have worked when it was performed the night before Garter Day, hopefully then in 1597. Who knows? Maybe it was a total triumph. The Merry Wives of Windsor is dated and it can feel a little inaccessible nowadays. It doesn't really have a lot of poetry in it either. In fact, it's 90% prose, more than any other play. Interestingly, it has, I think, been adapted into more operas than any other Shakespeare play. By my count, there are at least nine operatic versions of Falstaff's capers in various languages, from composers as varied as William Balfe, Carl Nicolai, Antonio Salieri, Rafe Vaughan Williams and Adolphe Adam. None of these holds a candle, mind you, to the utter brilliance of Verdi's opera Falstaff. It was the last opera he ever wrote, and it's a magnificent, joyful romp. There's something really glorious about Verdi in his late 80s, having written magnificent versions of Macbeth and Othello and all those other operas, ending his artistic life with an opera that converts a fairly ordinary play into a work of transcendent, magical genius. Verdi actually writes comedy into the structure of the music itself, Treat yourself and go have a listen to the very last number in the show, a rollicking finale that has all ten principal characters singing and riffing off each other at the same time. It's extraordinary music, and it proclaims all the world is a jest, and he who laughs last, laughs longest. I'll leave you with Verdi for now. As ever, thank you for listening, and I hope that the very loud garden party at my neighbour's house hasn't made it into this recording. Part of me considered complaining, but since this, of all plays, is a play about a bunch of people having fun near the woods on a summer night, I can hardly begrudge them. Wherever you are, I hope you're doing okay and enjoying your summer nights too. Next week, we'll go for something entirely different and have a look at another very obscure play, Troilus and Cressida. Mind yourself, stay safe, and I'll speak to you next time.